Good morning. We will start Sunday school. If you all will uh, come forward and take your seats. Our lesson is on Presbyterian polity. There's outlines in the back if you haven't gotten one yet. And before we start, uh, let's begin with prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day that you've given us to come into your presence, to rest, to gather with the saints and worship you. We thank you especially for the opportunity to ordain and install new elders and deacons and, and the ministry that is represented by these men. We ask that you would bless them and their ministry, that you bless Spring Meadows uh, through them, and that you'd bless this study as we discern what is the biblical form of church government. Would you open our minds through your Holy Spirit that we might understand and apprehend Christ through this study. In Jesus' name, amen. So of course, um, we are ordaining elders and deacons this morning during service. And so it's a great opportunity for us to review for those who already know or maybe learn for the first time what Presbyterian polity is, uh, what, what, what our elders and deacons, what do they do, um, and why do we have them? And this is an important topic because, you know, some people try to downplay Presbyterianism. They try to say it's not that important or vital to our identity, but it's in our DNA as Presbyterians, historically, but even etymologically, right? Presbyterian, uh, we're named after our polity, not our theology. Not saying that our polity is more important, but just saying that that's what our identity is. You know, our name is our polity. So it's important for us to know what our polity is. And so let's begin by just defining those terms, Presbyterian and polity. When we're talking about polity, we're talking about church government. The word polity comes from, you know, the Greek word polis, which means city. Uh, we get our word politics, political, from that same word. So we're ta talking about church government. Um, in other words, what officers does the church have? Uh, does it just have pastors? Are there other officers as well? And what laws does the church have? In other words, how do you become a member um, and how do you stay a member? Are there anything that, anything that you can do to uh, disqualify yourself from membership and be removed from the roles? Um, and so those are the two big questions when it comes to church government, what officers and what laws. We're going to mainly focus on officers. We'll talk about a couple laws. Um, and when we're talking about laws, really, uh, of course, we're talking about scripture, but we're talking about how scripture has been interpreted and systematized in our uh, confession of faith and catechisms, uh, but more importantly, when it comes to polity, in our book of church order. Um, and so I'll be using the book of church order a couple times this morning. Um, if you're curious what that is, you can just look up PCA, book of church order. You can read it online online. Uh, and you could follow along on a couple of points if you wanted to. Some people believe that church government is just a matter of pragmatism. It's just whatever works best, uh, whatever's most practical, that's the best church government. That's what we need to do. But we believe as Presbyterians that Christ actually instituted the proper form of church government. Uh, in other words, not, it's not just how people run the church but how Christ runs the church. That's a, a, t a, book, of, uh, a book title by Guy Waters, uh, how Jesus runs the church. So he has given us a particular church government. And that church government, you know, if you're wondering, you don't have to look any further than our name, Presbyterian. Presbyterian comes from the Greek word presbuteros, which just means elder. And so uh, Presbyterian polity is elder-led church government. Elder-led. Uh, you can see this in the BCO, chapter 1, section 1. The scriptural form of church government is representative or Presbyterian. So we believe that it's the scriptural form. It's elder-led or representative. And all our ruling bodies or courts are presbyteries. So we have a session, we have a uh, presbytery, and we have a general assembly. And those are all actually presbyteries because they're all gatherings of presbyters, elders. An elder does not just mean older person. It's a ruling and teaching office. It's a distinguished office. 
Uh, that's why we kind of use that term elder. That's why the scripture uses that term elder, but it doesn't have to do with just age. Um, unlike congregational church government, that's another option for polity. Unlike congregationalism, Presbyterianism believes that there are authorities above the congregation and the local church. So that's what we're talking about with the presbyteries. Uh, there's, there's authorities above the congregation and the local church. And unlike Episcopal church government, Presbyterianism does not believe that there is a higher office than elder, nor that churches may be governed by a single officer, which would be usually a bishop. And so let's look closer at those options, the congregational and Episcopal. Let's look at possible polities. Congregationalism, this is the church government that uh, says the congregation makes all or most of the decisions that affect the church unless they delegate to ministers or committees. So everything is done in a congregational meeting. Everyone votes on everything, every dollar spent, unless it's delegated to someone else or a committee. Some congregational churches hold weekly congregational meetings where they vote on everything the church does. All or most of the authority in the church is exercised by the congregation. That's congregationalism. And it usually goes hand in hand with independency. Independency is technically different, but it usually goes hand in hand. Independency just means that there is no broader governing body over the congregation. Uh, there's little to no connection between congregations. You're independent from all other congregations. Um, and so, for, for example, most Baptist churches are congregational in some form. Even some Lutheran churches are. Lutheran polity is kind of confusing, but some Lutheran churches are congregational. And so let's evaluate congregationalism. For one, congregationalism often fails to recognize the biblical office of elder and deacon. Some congregational churches only have a pastor, and then the congregation is the other governing body. It's just congregation pastor. There's no elder or deacon. Some do have those, but many don't recognize those biblical offices. Uh, and this can often have practical implications. So congregationalism can either become mob rule, depending on how the congregation runs, or if, uh, or if they just, if the congregation just does whatever the pastor says, congregationalism be can become a dictatorship. It can, and it can actually do the opposite of what it's intended to do. It can become more of a monarchy than a democracy. Uh, further, there is little to no accountability for the local church and pastor, especially with independency. There's little to no accountability for the local congregation and the pastor. No higher authority for a congregant to appeal to if they're mistreated or if they're wrongly excommunicated or something like that. No higher authority to appeal to. That's congregationalism. Next is Episcopal, Episcopal church polity. Uh, there's a high degree of diversity in Episcopal church polity. This could describe anything from Roman Catholicism to Anglicanism uh, or Episcopalianism, obviously, uh, Eastern Orthodoxy, uh, even some forms of Lutheranism. Some, some Lutherans are congregational, some are Episcopal. It's kind of interesting. Um, the, uh, this is a, a paraphrase of Bannerman. Uh, he has a really good book on church government. The essential the essential distinctive of Episcopalianism relates to the order of bishops as separate from and superior to both elder and deacon. So, Episcopal comes from the Greek word episkopos, which in our English Bibles usually is translated as overseer. Um, in Latin, it's bishop. So, the Episcopal uh, church government is bishop-led church government. Uh, it, that's the distinctive between it and Presbyterianism. They have bishops. And the New Testament does refer, we have it in Scripture, this, this office of episkopos. Um, and so we see in the early and, and the medieval church that there was an office of bishop, which was a single officer with significant authority over the churches in a, in a geographical region. And usually the bishop had the distinct authority of ordaining pastors or priests deciding controversies and exercising other judicial authority. And obviously the Roman Catholic Church took this even further by placing the Pope over the whole church as a universal bishop. And so they just took that, that, that principle of bishop and extended it even further. 
So let's evaluate this bishop-led church government, this Episcopal. The New Testament office of episkopos, bishop or overseer, is just another term for elder. That's pretty easy to uh, discern. You can see it in Acts 20, 28. I'll turn there really fast. Where we see Paul, he begins in Acts 20 by addressing the elders uh, in Ephesus in verse 17. He called the elders of the church of Ephesus and he spoke to them. And then in 28, he's addressing the elders and he says, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. And that's the word episkopos, that's the word bishop. And so he's using, he's calling elders bishops. And so it's, it's, an, it's an interchangeable term for the same office in the New Testament. And even Pope Benedict Sixteenth, or Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger in his book, Called to Communion, he agrees that Presbyterianism was the biblical form of church government. That's pretty significant, a pope said this. Uh, he says in Acts 20, 28, the two terms presbyter, elder, and episcopoi, bishop, are identified. The offices of Jewish uh, and Gentile Christianity are equated and defined as a single office of apostolic succession. So he acknowledges that basically elder seems to have been the Jewish term for this office, and episcopos or bishop was the Gentile Christian term for this office of elder. So it was two interchangeable, one used mainly by Jews, one used by the Gentiles. But basically... Pope Benedict XVI here is saying that there is no bishop. There's no higher office than elder. He's acknowledging that. He's acknowledging that Presbyterianism was a biblical form of church government. And so advocates of episcopacy don't usually argue for it biblically. They know Presbyterianism is the biblical model, but they argue historically and practically. They said that it was in the early church, um, and it just makes sense. It's practical to have one person doing the administration of several churches. <clears throat> um, but, pres- uh, but, but, but bishop-led church government is not biblical. It was not present in the New Testament church. It developed gradually in the early church as certain influential pastors and elders uh, became even more influence, I- influential over the churches in their regions. And uh, my, my professor, Dr. Clark, says if you're, not, if you're kind of doubtful about how that could happen so quickly, you know, from the first century where there was no bishops to the second century where there were suddenly bishops, you're like, what, how could that happen so fast if it wasn't, you know, uh, ordained or, or sanctioned by the apostles? Uh, he said, just look at John MacArthur. <laughs> He's basically a bishop, right? And though that happened in a generation, so. It can happen fast, just gaining more influence uh, over the churches in your region, um, but it was not in the New Testament. And further, the New Testament never speaks of a single elder. Uh, If you search just singular elder in the New Testament, it comes up like one or two times, and it's always, uh, it's not talking about the governing body of a church. It's, Paul says, you know, don't let a charge be brought against an elder. That's like one of the only times that the singular word elder is used. And so it's almost always a, it is always a plurality of elders that is governing the church. It's almost always unbiblical and unwise to vest authority in a single officer, and that's what Episcopal church government does, which means that like congregationalism, Episcopalianism fails to set accountability over the bishops. Uh, You know, some have a, a further hierarchy, but basically bishops have little to no accountability, Um, and you can see how that goes wrong often. So that's Episcopal. And this last one that I have listed, the Moses model or corporate structure, this is not, these aren't official forms of church government. They're, they're not usually listed. It's usually just three, Presbyterian, uh, Congregationalism, and Episcopal. But this is one that has emerged in American megachurches where they don't really have an official form of church government, but, but this is kind of what happens. Moses or corporate structure. Um, This has especially emerged from Chuck Smith and Calvary Chapel. The senior pastor is like Moses to the congregation. He goes, speaks to God, and tells the congregation what to do. And if the congregation says, we don't like that, then they're out of there. They're kicked out. And and you can see this just in Mark Driscoll, if you've ever listened to the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. This is a great example of the Moses model. He says, either get on the bus or get run over. 
That is basically the Moses model in a nutshell. The senior pastor is essentially the only form of church government. He has the vision. He's taking the church in a direction. And if you don't like it, you're going to get run over. The corporate structure is similar. It's kind of morphed out of the Moses model. The pastor is overseen by a board. But this is usually just a formality because the IRS requires a 501c3 to have a board, right? And so they're being legal, they have a board, but the board usually just runs the church practically, uh, gives business acumen, financial acumen, but it doesn't exercise spiritual authority. So they're not elders, uh, they're just, they're just, it's just like a business, it's a business, um, the board of a business. And who picks the board? Usually the pastor. The pastor picks the board from his friends, his family, um, and not, the congregation has no say in who the board is, usually, oftentimes. And so let's evaluate these. Both of these models seem like a Pentecostal copied an Episcopal's homework. In other words, these models put the pastor in the place like, like a bishop. He has sole authority over the church and rules more like a dictator than an elder. The congregation is stripped of its right to elect its officers. And you can see in Acts 6.3 where the apostles say, uh, you know, I believe this is talking about deacons. They say, uh, appoint for yourselves, select for yourselves godly men to act as deacons. And the congregation does it. It's not the apostles saying, these are the men we're going to pick for you. The congregation has that right to elect those who rule over them. But these models don't recognize that right. Um, and again, just like the, the previous models, there's little to no accountability for the pastor, even within the church. You know, the board usually just does whatever the pastor wants if there is a board. So even within the church, let alone higher than the church or outside the church, there's nothing to stop the pastor from abusing the congregation and profiting from it. Like congregationalism, these models neglect the biblical offices of elder and deacon. And so those are the, the other options for church government. But what about, would we say that these, these other church governments, um, you know, would Episcopal church, would a congregational church, even a Moses model church, are they, are they Christians? Are they a true church? Do you have to be Presbyterian to be a true church? Well, unlike Roman Catholicism, which says that the only true church is united to the only true head of the church, the Pope, Presbyterians believe that other churches can be true churches. You see this in, in the book of Church Order 1-7, the scriptural doctrine of Presbyterianism is necessary to the perfection of the visible church, but not essential to its existence. And so you can have a visible church without being Presbyterian. We're not excommunicating every other kind of church polity. The Book of Church Order 2.2 says, all of these different denominations of professing Christians which maintain the word and sacrament in their fundamental integrity are to be recognized as true branches of the Church of Jesus Christ. So that's the litmus test. It's, do, they, do they hold word and sacrament in their fundamental integrity? The litmus test isn't, are they Presbyterian? Um, okay, so moving on from uh, different options for polity, now let's look at principles of Presbyterian. Let's dig in deeper to Presbyterianism. Uh, and really, we're looking at the foundation, the uh, the, the foundational assumptions and doctrines that inform the practice of Presbyterianism. So the first principle of Presbyterianism is that Christ alone is head and king of the church, having all authority as the sole mediator, prophet, priest, and king, and he contains in himself all the offices in his church by way of eminency. In other words, the church has no other head. We don't have a pope. The pastor is not head of the church. The elders are not head of the church. The congregation is not the head of the church. Only Christ is head of the church. This means that neither is the church a democracy. We have a king. We see in scripture, Christ has given all of the titles to all of the offices in the church. He is called apostle. He is called teacher. He's called pastor or shepherd. He's called minister, bishop, servant, and deacon. Um, he is, in First Peter, we see he's called the chief shepherd. And so all of our shepherds in our church are just under shepherds. They're representatives. They're working under the chief shepherd, the only head of the church who is Christ. The second principle 
is that Christ, the head and ki- the head and king of the church, rules and teaches from heaven through his word and spirit by the ministry of men. In other words, Christ immediately exercises authority through representatives. And this is this is just logical because Christ after rising from the dead and being with his apostles, he ascended into heaven. And so he's no longer on earth with his church. And so he rules his church. He is the head and king of his church, but he rules the church through representatives. And this means that even though Christ is the only head of the church, he has appointed men to exercise authority under him. The men that rule the church are, prim- are primarily Christ's representatives, and only secondarily do they act as the congregation's representatives. And so this is a difference, you know, <clears throat> we can call Presbyterianism representative church government, and that's true, but there's a difference between Presbyterianism and uh, the republicanism of the U.S. It's not just, you know, uh, representatives going to the legislative body to represent their constituents. It's actually, in Presbyterianism, it's the representatives representing their king, uh, Jesus, to the church. And the authority of these men doesn't, it's not inherent in them. They don't claim authority for themselves. This authority rests only in Christ's word and his spirit. In other words, Christ's representatives may only appeal to his word as authoritative, and that's his word as illuminated by the Holy Spirit. Christ's word determines what kind of officers the church has. We can't just create new offices uh, just as we want or as seems practical to us. Uh, The word of God determines the offices. It determines their duties and their qualifications. And the Holy Spirit appoints them. That's what we see in Acts 20.28. We already read that briefly. It says the Holy Spirit has appointed you overseers in the church. And so, Christ rules through his word and, word and spirit by the ministry of men. The third principle is that Christ has endowed the church with power to that end, power to rule representatively. We can see this in Matthew 16, 19, and 18, 18. Uh, I'll turn there really fast. 16, 19, Jesus is speaking to Peter, and he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And he's speaking to Peter there, um, and the keys of the kingdom of heaven are really what we identify as the power and authority of the church. But then you go to Matthew 18, 18, and we see the same language. But this time he's speaking to the apostles, all of the apostles. He says, truly I say to you, and that you is plural, truly I say to you, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And so that's that same language. It's the keys of the kingdom. He not only gave it to Peter, but he gave it to all the apostles. And that is the power of the church. It's those keys of the kingdom. There are two common errors when it comes to church power. One is to give church unlimited power, and basically to say the Pope's words are Christ's words. Um, The other is to say that the church has no power. And the church is more like a country club than an institution assembled uh, to represent Christ. But Christ did give power to his church. He gave them the keys of the kingdom. And those keys of the kingdom are usually identified as uh, the gospel preached that's opening the kingdom, um, that's forgiving sins, and then exercising church discipline. Um, that's, That's closing the kingdom when necessary. Those are the keys of the kingdom. Uh, Christ vested this power in the whole body, those ru- uh, the rulers and those ruled. This is BCO 3.1. So it's in the whole body, the rulers and those ruled. Uh, and BCO 3.1 also says this power as exercised by the people, that is those ruled, extends to the choice of those officers whom he has appointed in his church. And so the power as exercised by the people is especially their choice of their officers. The power as exercised by the officers is twofold. The power of order is exercised severally or individually uh, by officers in the preaching of the gospel, the administering of the sacraments, reproving the erring, visiting the sick, comforting the afflicted. This is the power of order uh, uh, exercised by officers individually. 
The power of jurisdiction is exercised jointly in church courts after the form of judgment. In other words, this is, <coughs> this is the power exercised by the session, the presbytery, and general assembly. The church's authority is exclusively spiritual. This is in BCO 3.4. This means that unlike uh, civil authority, unlike the state, the church does not wield the sword. The church has no uh, authority to use force or coercion like the state does. Uh, the constitution of the state must be determined by human reason and the course of providential events, but the constitution of the church derives from divine revelation. So the constitution of the church comes from scripture. The church has no right to construct or modify a government for the state, and the state has no right to frame a creed or polity for the church. They can't uh, overstep their bounds onto each other. They are planets moving in concentric orbits. That's one of my favorite lines in the BCO. Church and state are planets moving in concentric orbits. That's what we mean when we say the church uh, is spiritual. The power of the church is spiritual. The, ch the power of the church is also ministerial and declarative, and by that we mean that no church officer or court is Lord, but only servant or minister of Christ. And that means that no church officer or court may make its own laws or doctrines. You know, no court of the church is a legislative body, but only but officers and courts in the church only have authority to declare what Christ has legislated and revealed in scriptures. That's what we mean by declarative. We can only declare what Christ has already uh, determined authoritatively. The last principle of Presbyterian polity, Christ provided the specific exercise of this power by representative officers. In other words, not only does Christ rule as king, not only does he rule through his word and spirit by representatives, and not only has he... Oh, sorry, this is not the last one. This is the fourth one. Uh, but not only has he uh, given power to the church, but he has given specific representative officers to exercise that power. And namely, these offices are the extraordinary office of apostle and prophet and the ordinary office of elder and deacon. These offices exercise the authority given to the church by our king. We can see in Ephesians 4.11, uh, Paul is, he is quoting um, a, a psalm in, in reference to Christ, and he's saying that when Christ ascended into heaven, he gave gifts to men. And what are those gifts? He says he gave the apostles the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. These are the gifts that Christ gave to his church when he ascended into heaven. And we see that especially we have those apostles and the prophets there. Those are the extraordinary offices. And by that, we mean that the apostles had to be witnesses of Christ's ministry and resurrection. They had to be witnesses of Christ's resurrection. They had to be eyewitnesses. We see that in Acts 1, 21, and 22, when the apostles are electing a replacement for uh, Judas. They say, let us appoint a man who has been with us since the beginning and who, has, who can be a witness of Christ's resurrection with us. And so it's a special office. It was limited to those people who were actually alive and who were actually eyewitnesses. It's a special office, and it was endowed with special gifts. In other words, healing, prophecy, speaking in tongues. And further, we see in Ephesians 2.20 that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. The foundation. These are the foundation. That means they don't continue. You only build a foundation once. You don't need more than one foundation. And so the apostles and the prophets were for laying the foundation of the early church. They don't continue. And so we have these ordinary offices that do continue in the church. When Paul gave instructions to Titus regarding church planting in Crete, he did not tell him to appoint priests, apostles, or prophets. What did he say? You see this in, in, in Titus 1.5. Paul says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And so elder is this ordinary office. It's the, it's the ongoing office in the church. It's what the apostles left to the church as they planted churches. 
Another title for elder is overseer. You see this just two verses later in Titus 1, 7. In giving qualifications for the elder, he says, for an overseer as God's steward must be above, above reproach. And so episkopos, bishop, overseer is the same as presbyter, elder. Of the elders and overseers, there are those who rule well and those who labor in preaching and teaching. This is 1 Timothy 5, 17. There are elders who rule well and those who labor in teaching and preaching. Um, and this is where we get the distinction of ruling and teaching elders. Of course, all elders rule, uh, but some are distinguished by teaching and preaching. And in order to keep the elders free to rule and teach, the apostles instituted the office of deacon to care for the poor, the sick, the widows. In other words, the office of deacon is one of service, not one of teaching or ruling. You can see this in Act 6, which I believe, um, and I think our, 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 our church believes, this is talking about the establishment of the office of deacon in Act 6. And so now this is the last principle of Presbyterian polity. We have offices to exercise church authority, um, and the last one is that we have, the, uh, that the power of the church resides primarily in the governing body of the local church, but also secondarily in broader church bodies. And we see especially in Acts 15. In other words, there are not only officers in our individual churches that rule over us, but there are also broader church bodies that go beyond the local church. And so we have these two, these two uh, categories. There's a local or particular church, and then there's the broader church bodies. So the local or particular church, Book of Church Order 4.1 says that a particular church consists of a number of professing Christians with their children associated together for divine worship and godly living, agreeable to the scriptures and submitting to the law, lawful government of Christ's kingdom. So this is what a local church is. It's a gathering of professing Christians and their children. But scripture does use the word church to refer to a group of churches in the same geographical region. You see this in Acts 9.31. It says that the church in Judea and all Samaria, it's singular, church, but it's talking about many congregations. And when matters arose that concerned more than one particular church, a body of elders from several churches had authority to decide controversy. And so we can see that uh, in Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council. This is broader church bodies or presbyteries. When the Judaizers were teaching that the Gentile Christians had to be circumcised in order to be saved, the representatives of several churches uh, were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. And so the representatives were Paul, Barnabas, and other men, presumably other elders. And so we have apostles, we have elders, and they're going to uh, Jerusalem to seek the advice and the counsel of a body of apostles and elders. And so here we see a group of churches gathering together and submitting to the authority of a group of elders and apostles. 15.6, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. This governing body sent a letter instructing the churches, and their instructions were received joyfully uh, as authoritative and so Acts 15 doesn't definitively prove every point of Presbyterian polity, but it does show unity between different churches working together through representatives, apostles, and elders to deliberate and decide matters of common concern. This is kind of the basis of our idea of presbyteries and general assemblies, uh, bodies outside of the local congregation. In other words, the individual churches were not isolated, which would contradict independency and congregationalism. They weren't isolated, but neither were they under the authority of a single officer of bishop or even apostle, which would contradict Episcopalianism. But they're connected through a presbytery, through a gathering of elders and apostles. And so those are our principles of Presbyterianism. It informs our, our practice, that's what informs our Book of Church Order. 
And so now we will move on to the practice of Presbyterianism. And by this, we're just going to look specifically at the offices and the courts. Just, I really just want to give you a familiarity to, to define terms if you don't know what the terms mean, to clarify things if you, if you know what the terms mean but aren't certain about some of their responsibilities. Um, and you could, you could, of course, follow along in the BCO or, or just later you could follow up if you wanted to. The office of elder, to begin with the Presbyterian officers. The office of elder uh, is defined in Book of Church Order, Chapter 8. The elders titles, qualifications, and duties. Uh, we see in, in BCO 8.1, the office of elder is one of dignity and usefulness. And there are, there are various titles given to express various duties that the elder has in scripture. As overseer of the flock of Christ, he is termed bishop or pastor. That's that term episkopos that I already mentioned, overseer, as he has the duty of being spiritually fruitful, dignified, and prudent, and example to the flock, and to govern well in the house and the kingdom of Christ, he is termed presbyter or elder. As he expounds the word by sound doctrine, both exhorts and convinces the gainsayer, he is termed teacher. These are all, all titles given to the office of elder. Scripture gives qualifications for the elder, especially in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, but these qualifications are summarized in Book of Church Order 8-2. The qualifications are basically, to summarize them, that he is to be competent in human learning, uh, to be blameless in life and able to teach. He should be above reproach, sober, and holy as befits the gospel, and he should rule his household well and have a good report from unbelievers. You could expand on these, uh, but this is basically how it's summarized in the Book of Church Order. The duties of an elder, BCO 8.3, the elder has uh, spiritual authority in the church to watch over the flock and guard against corruption of doctrine or morals, to exercise spiritual government and discipline in the church, to visit people at their homes, especially the sick, to instruct the ignorant, comfort the mourner, nourish and guard the children, set a worthy example to the flock by their zeal to evangelize the unconverted, make disciples, and demonstrate hospitality, to pray with and for the people, careful to seek the fruit of the preached word. This is how the BCO summarizes the duties of the elder. And of course, I've already pointed out uh, the distinction between ruling and teaching elder. We see this in BCO 7.2. Within the class of elder, there are two orders of teaching elders and ruling elders. Ruling elders can be described with all of the above. Everything I just said d uh, applies to ruling elders. They have the same titles, authority, um, including teaching. They have the same responsibility to teach. Uh, but not all who are called as elders in the church have all the same duties. Christ calls some to the particular office of teaching elders. And of course, the teaching elder shares the above function with ruling elders, but he does have particular titles and duties. And so we see this in BCO 8.5, the particular duties and titles of the teaching elder. This is the best summary of the difference. It belongs to the order of teaching elder to feed the flock by reading, expounding, and preaching the word of God, and to administer the sacraments. So this is what distinguishes ruling from teaching elder. Teaching elders preach and expound the word of God and administer the sacraments. Ruling elders do everything that the teaching elder does except those two things. And as he is sent to declare the will of God to sinners and to beseech them to be reconciled to God through Christ, he is termed ambassador. As he bears glad tidings of salvation to the ignorant and perishing, he is termed evangelist. As he stands to proclaim the gospel, he is termed preacher. As he dispenses the manifold grace of God and the ordinances instituted by Christ, he is termed steward of the mysteries of God. And so there's ruling elder, there's teaching elder, and those, that's, those are some of the differences. But, but the PCA is especially concerned with the parity of elders. Parity means uh, e equality. It means equality. There's a basic equality in the office of ruling and teaching elder. 
And this means in BCO 810 that ruling elders possess the same authority and eligibility to office in the courts of the church as teaching elders. Same authority and eligibility between ruling and teaching elders. This means ruling elders also have the duty to teach. And this is why we often have our ruling elders teaching Sunday school. Uh, the parity means that teaching elders and ruling elders have the same authority. They each have one vote at session. The distinction is often described as primus inter pares, which is Latin for first among equals. The teaching elder is an equal of the ruling elders, but he has a special responsibility of leading them. He's the moderator of session. He leads the meetings uh, and, he, and administering word and sacrament. And so that's the, el the office of elder, uh, the office of ruling and teaching elder. And now the office of deacon. This is defined in BCO chapter 9, the office of deacon, his titles and qualifications. The office of deacon is one of sympathy and service following Christ's example of serving his church. That's BCO 9.1, sympathy and service. The title of deacon signifies the office. This word means servant. Deacon means servant. And so deacons are servants of the church. Uh, scripture outlines the qualifications of deacon uh, in 1 Timothy 3. NBCO 9.3 summarizes them. Basically, deacons are to be men of spiritual character, honest repute, and exemplary lives. They are to be men who have a brotherly spirit, warm sympathies, and sound judgment. The deacon's duties are described in BCO 9.2, to minister to those who are in need, to the sick, to the friendless, and to any who may be in distress to develop the grace of liberality or generosity in the members of the church, to devise effective methods of collecting the gifts of the people and to distribute these gifts among the objects to which they are contributed. And then last, deacons shall have the care of the property of the congregation and shall keep in proper repair the church edifice and other buildings. And so there are three main duties of the deacon, to care for the sick, those in need, the poor, the widow, to develop the grace of generosity, to gather collections, um, and to distribute those collections, and then to manage church property. And so that's the office of deacon. Now moving from office to courts, Presbyterian courts. First, why, why are these called courts? Uh, why are they called courts in the BCO? Uh, doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't mean that these are, you know, just judicial Bodies. We're not, we're not talking about lawsuits and things like that. They're not the same as our civil courts where we have judges. Rather, think of a royal court. These are the royal courts of King Jesus. But this does emphasize the nature of church authority. They're not legislative bodies. By using court, we're kind of distinguishing between legislative, you know, making laws and judicial, which is interpreting laws. Um, but even more, these are courts of King Jesus. The courts of the church do not make laws or doctrines. They only interpret and apply them. And so first, the session. This is defined in BCO 12. What is a session? Uh, session is the assembly of ruling and teaching elders in one local church. And so properly speaking, the session, like every court, is a presbytery. It's a gathering of elders. But the session exercises jurisdiction over a single church. These are the elders that gather together in Spring Meadows Presbyterian Church to exercise jurisdiction over Spring Meadows. The pastor or the senior pastor is the moderator of session. He leads the meetings. He ad ad administrates the meetings. Uh, the session usually meets at least quarterly, but usually monthly. The duties of the session are described in BCO 12.5. I will go over those fairly quickly. Broadly speaking, the session is responsible for maintaining the spiritual government of the church. They have the power to inquire into the faith and life of church members and to exercise church discipline, uh, receiving and dismissing members, encouraging parents not to neglect to present their children for baptism. Uh, they have the power to examine, ordain, and install ruling elders and deacons on their election by the church, um, and to examine the records and proceedings of the deacons so they keep the deacons accountable. Um, they can call church meetings when necessary and establish and control Sunday schools and Bible studies um, and all the special groups in the church. Uh, they oversee Lord's Day worship, the music, the preaching, the sacraments. Uh, 
they have the responsibility to obey, cooperate with, and attend higher courts. In other words, presbytery and general assembly. And so that's the session. Next is presbytery. BCO 13 defines the presbytery. What is a presbytery? Well, it's a gathering of elders, right? Presbyter means elder. Presbytery is the gathering assembly of elders. But specifically in our book of church order, a presbytery is the assembly of elders from all the churches in a region. And so the presbytery exercises jurisdiction over what is common to the ministers, sessions, and churches within a prescribed district. Presbytery usually meets quarterly. Ours is called Pacific Presbytery, and we are the only church that's not in um, the LA area. And so usually we have to travel to LA area to go to the meetings of Presbytery, but that's what it's like. It's a, it's a regional gathering of, of elders from the churches in that region. The Presbytery consists of all the teaching elders and churches within its bounds. Each congregation is entitled to two ruling elder uh, representatives for the first 350 commuting members and one additional ruling elder for each additional 500 commuting members. And so every teaching elder may go, but only two ruling elders may go from every church unless it's a larger church. Um, and that's because usually we have more ruling elders. And so churches could just, you know, stack the courts basically with the ruling elders. Uh, when Presbytery meets, yeah, I already said that. Every, te every teaching elder may attend. The duties of Presbytery, BCO 13.9, are to receive under care, examine, and license candidates for gospel ministry, to receive, dismiss, ordain, install, remove, and judge ministers, to review the records and minutes of church sessions. So Presbytery keeps churches accountable by reviewing their minutes of their meetings. Uh, they address issues with correct recording, um, acting constitutionally, etc. They condemn erroneous opinions which injure the purity and peace of the church. They oversee churches, especially those without a pastor. They devise measures for the enlargement of the church. And they propose to General Assembly such matters as may be of common benefit to the church at large. And so finally, the last court, the General Assembly. What is General Assembly? This is defined in BCO 14. General Assembly is the assembly of elders. It's also a presbytery, a, a gathering of presbyters from all the churches in the PCA. It's the gathering of all the elders from all the, all the churches in the PCA. Every teaching elder may attend General Assembly, but the same rule um, that applied to presbytery applies to ruling elders. Only two may attend from each church unless it's a larger church. The General Assembly exercises jurisdiction over such matters as concern the whole church. Uh, General Assembly usually meets yearly in June, usually. Location varies, but it's usually on the East Coast. The General Assembly is the highest court of this church and represents in one body all the churches thereof and constitutes the bond of union, peace, and correspondence among all its congregations and courts. That's BCO 14.1. And so the General Assembly really embodies to the highest degree the connection that the local congregations have with one another. The duties of General Assembly, BCO 14.6. I'll go over these briefly. To receive and issue all appeals, references, and complaints to bear testimony against doctrine and immorality in practice. Uh, to decide all controversies respecting doctrine and discipline, to give advice and instruction, to review the records and minutes of the presbyteries. In other words, General Assembly keeps presbyteries accountable. Uh, to erect new presbyteries, unite, divide existing ones, to institute, superintend agencies for evangelism, to suppress schism, to receive and unite with other church bodies. Um, and in general, to recommend measures for the promotion of charity, truth, and holiness through all the churches under its care. So those are the duties of General Assembly. You have on your handout, I won't list these out, but just in case you're curious, these are the permanent committees and agencies of General Assembly. Uh, these are things you might already be familiar with, but maybe you don't know that they are accountable to the General Assembly. And likewise, you have the Standing Judicial Committee. Uh, just in case you don't know what it is, SJC, this is the highest authority in the PCA for church discipline. 
The SJC decides all cases when they affect the whole church, when they're controversial, or when a case is appealed from a presbytery. So this is, you know, the highest uh, body that you can appeal to for church discipline. And to close this section, the rights of communing members in the PCA. So if you become a member of our church, this is the rights that you have. Besides the rights to the discipline, instruction, and ministry of word and sacrament, you have one vote at any congregational meeting, including votes taken for elders and deacons. So if you're not a member, you can't vote for elders and deacons. You also have the right to request session to call a congregational meeting, which requires a certain percentage of the congregation. Uh, God forbid if you ever are under a, uh, you have a charge brought against you for church discipline, if the session judges you guilty in a case, you can transfer your case to presbytery. That's called an appeal. You can appeal your case. And if the same thing happens at presbytery, you could appeal to the standing judicial commission. And this doesn't guarantee that you, anything will be reversed, but you have a higher authority to appeal to, appeal to ideally ensuring that justice will be rendered. Uh, you can complain. If the session does something you think to be an error, you can file a written complaint against the session. First to the session, and then if the session doesn't address it, you can go to the presbytery. And if our presbytery does anything that our session thinks to be an error, the session can file a complaint against presbytery. And reference, the, the session can ask presbytery for advice on a matter if unsure how to act. That's called a reference. So those are the rights of commuting members in the PCA. It's really important to know what rights you have, why it's important to be a member. And so quickly to conclude, Presbyterianism is elder-led church government. We believe it's the church government that is most faithful to scripture and most prudent when it comes to holding pastors and churches accountable. According to Presbyterian polity, Christ is the only head of the church and he rules through his word and spirit by representatives on the earth. These representatives are elders and deacons. Presbyterian churches, uh, the Presbyterian courts are the session, presbyter presbytery, and general assembly. And some closing thoughts. Presbyterianism is not perfect, no doubt. It often makes for a slow process, and any system uh, can be abused, even Presbyterian polity. But Presbyterian polity has checks and balances to guard against and address abuse. We have uh, systems of accountability, and our polity grants significant rights to church members. And Spring Meadows is not a lone wolf. We're connected to all the churches in our presbytery and all the churches in the PCA through the General Assembly. And that combination of connection, accountability, and biblical fidelity makes for the best system of church government possible as long as our king rules from heaven representatively. <sighs> <laughs> I've been telling people this week that this needs to be a series because there's a lot to cover. Thank you for hanging on. There's no time for questions.